Paul, an apostle of Christ Jesus by the will of God, to God's holy people in Ephesus, the faithful in Christ Jesus, grace and peace to you from God our Father and the Lord Jesus Christ. Praise be to God and the Father of our Lord Jesus Christ, who has blessed us in heavenly realms with every spiritual blessing in Christ. For he chose us in him before the creation of the world to be holy and blameless in his sight. In love, he predestined us for adoption to sonship through Jesus Christ, in accordance with his pleasure and will to the praises of his glorious grace, which he has freely given us in the one he loved. In him we have redemption through his blood, the forgiveness of sins, in accordance with riches of God's grace that he lavished on us. With all wisdom and understanding, he'd made known to us the mystery of his will according to his good pleasure, which he purposed in Christ, to be put into effect when times reached their fulfillment, to bring unity to all things in heaven and on earth under Christ. Amen. Thank you, Andrew. I could listen to you read scripture all day, buddy. Well, good morning. My name is Amanda, and I'm one of the pastors here at Hope, and I want to welcome you to be with us this morning. Have you ever started to tell a simple story, and as you started going, you realize that you're engaged in a much larger story than maybe just what happened to you on that day, because you have to give context, and you have to give background, and you have to explain all the things that you're happening. Um, I don't know about you, but if I am passionate about something, I don't just give you surface information. Our youngest son just started pre-K, and many people will ask me how he is doing with the transition, and chances are you're going to hear from me more than just about whether or not he has shrieked at drop-off, which if you know Judah, you know that his scream can shatter these windows. But we're going to get into a conversation about universal pre-K and how de Blasio started that a few years ago, and it's this new program, and rumor has it they're going to start a new one with three-year-olds soon, and what is the cost and benefit for the city and for parents, and oh my goodness, I'm so grateful for it. Like We're going to have this whole big conversation instead of just hearing about how Judah is doing. He has stopped crying. Thank you, Jesus. Um, But this is what Paul is essentially doing in Ephesians. Especially here at the beginning, he is passionate and he is excited and he wants to give you all of this information with all of this enthusiasm and joy. Scholars suggest that this passage in Ephesians is actually just this monstrous run-on sentence because he's just got so much to tell you. And so we kick off the fall this year, diving into this letter, authored by Paul as like a circular to these churches, these new churches in Ephesus. Paul, who's in prison at the time, he gives us a vast view of the whole story. He goes from one theme to another, God, the world, Jesus, the church, the means of salvation, Christian behavior, family, spiritual warfare. You can feel his joy and his passion spew out of the pages as he relates what God has revealed to him to these churches. Here at Hope this fall, we need that fresh vision. We need a vision of what it is the true story is, to be reminded of the whole picture. And what does it mean for us to be a church, to wrestle with what it means to be a Christian and to follow Jesus 
Because it's very easy for the church, for this gathering of people to become more of like a social club. In some instances, more like a country club where your attendance, where your belonging gives you status. Or the church is just a place where you come to prove your moral superiority. You can say, well, at least I go to church. Or the church can become a place that is just so out of touch with regular life, so disconnected from what's really going on that it's obsolete and unnecessary. But Paul, in his letter here to these churches in Ephesians, with all this joy and enthusiasm, he's conveying truths that are timeless. And themes, these themes that he explains are just as potent and as powerful today as they were then. And Paul is so ecstatic about these things because he's confident that God's promises and that God's promised gifts outweigh his present circumstances. Because where did I say Paul was? In prison. It's what this first chunk of this letter gets at, that there are these gifts, there are these things from God that if we understand them, we're not stuck by our circumstances anymore. I don't know about you, but often my circumstances win. They control my temper. They control my energy. They control my diet, my sense of humor, my joy. If things go well during the day, if the subway is not too crowded or smelly and it's on time, if the lines are short, if the deal goes through, if I had enough sleep, I can be delightful, right? But the reality is, Although I have not had a stint in jail, typically my circumstances are less than what I hoped for. Things go wrong. There's not as much money in the bank account as I thought there was supposed to be. I'm in conflict with someone, with a family member or a friend, or I'm really tired, or there's a much greater tragedy potentially going on in my life. My desire for myself and for our church is that we would be a place that can engage fully with our circumstances, but not be slaves to them. I believe that if we can grasp what it is that Paul has understood here as he just spouts on in this worship of, look at all these things God has done, if we can start to grasp that and internalize it, I believe we will live as a church with life and joy, even in the midst of difficulty and unexpected circumstances. And so what are these promised gifts from God that can outweigh Paul's present circumstances and ours? The first is a gift of family and the culture of individuality. This is, one of, this is one of our core things that we talk about here at this church. And it comes from this passage in Ephesians. It says, For he chose us in him before the creation of the world to be holy and blameless in his sight. In love he predestined us for adoption to sonship through Jesus Christ in accordance with his pleasure and will to the praise of his glorious grace which he has freely given us in the one he loves culture. It's a family and a culture of individuality. Paul is writing definitely to a different culture than what we experience in our culture. One where the family that you belong to, the family that you come from in his time, it's of the 
utmost importance. In our American culture, we actually are kind of prize ourselves on it doesn't matter where you come from, it doesn't matter your background, equal opportunity for everyone, right? You can be anything you want to be. And I know that in a culturally diverse room like this, we're coming from different places where family has different levels of importance and, and how much it impacts your success or your standing. But for Paul, family is everything. Who you come from, where you come from, who you're connected to, passing on the family name, it defines everything about you. And so it's interesting that he is excited to trade in his family of origin for this new family. He's so jazzed and excited because he understands that before the foundations of the earth were laid, before God breathed, let there be. He had determined that we would be adopted through Christ into his family. This wasn't a secondary decision. This wasn't something that came up later. This has always been God's plan. What does it mean for us to be adopted into a family? It means you have full access, full inheritance, you are totally and completely a part of that family. I just heard a story from a friend of mine about someone who, one of her very good friends, who over a decade ago attempted an international adoption. And so she and her husband, they went to this country, everything was all set up, and they go, and there's this brand new little baby, and they meet the baby, and all the paperwork's done. The adoption is final. It's gone through. There's a new birth certificate. There are new parents now for this child. And on their way to a store with the birth mom and the baby, the mom disappears with this baby. And so this couple comes back to the United States, no child. But the adoption has gone through. The adoption has happened. And so just a couple years ago, over a decade after this happened, this couple gets a phone call that the birth mom had passed away, this child had been moved from place to place, but their name is on that birth certificate as the parents. And so would they like to come and pick up their daughter? A decade after it happens, and sure enough, they have legal rights. The adoption is final. It's gone through. That is legally their child blew my mind. I was like, that's incredible, but that's the reality about what it means that God has adopted us. It's final. Our names have been changed on his birth certificate. No going back. Sure, we might be lost and disconnected from him, but we have been adopted into his family. I love this idea, too, that it was planned out. If you know anything about adoption, it's not by mistake. There's no part of an adoption that's a mistake or an accident. It costs money. It takes time. There's paperwork and fingerprints. Kids can be created accidentally, but they can't be adopted accidentally. We tell our two children who are adopted, you guys were the most on purpose of any of this. Like, we thought about you and prayed for you. And just as this was good news to Paul, this was mind-blowing news to Paul, this is good news for us today. One, because we have full access to our creator God in the way that a child has access to their father, the way that a child has access to their mother. That is the access that we have. We don't need to come with fear and trembling, but we can know that we have a good God, a good father who loves us. And it's also good news because we as the church get to live as family, as extended family, as brothers and sisters 
with one another here on earth. And this is one of the most beautiful things that the church gets to offer. We get to live as extended family for the sake of others. In a culture that is consumed with ourselves, that is consumed with individuality, that is consumed with how can I get ahead, how can I do what it is I want to do, as brothers and sisters in the church, we get to be a beacon of something different. And that is so important and valuable, especially in the city that we live in. And then the culture that we find ourselves in today. E.B. White, the author of Here is New York, says this. He says, New York will bestow the gift of loneliness and the gift of privacy. Reality is we are walking around and past people who are the most isolated they have ever been in a sea of millions. And as the church, we get to live and extend family to them. I got to watch a beautiful picture of this over the last week. Some of you know, and some of you were there this past Friday night, we hosted a mid-autumn festival, which is a harvest moon celebration, um, really in the Chinese culture. And so we've known that this neighborhood has, has changed, and it's had continued to have an influx of Chinese families and Chinese students. And so we said, how can we love and serve them? And it was amazing on Friday night to watch singles and elderly and children coming together to be a gift to their neighbors. This is the beauty of the church. They don't know each other. They have no reason to provide a meal and a safe place, but to say, you're away from your family, so I'm going to create a place that can feel like family for you. And leading up during the week, I love it, is Deanna and Hage and their three kids open their home to a single woman to come in and to cook and to make mooncakes for hundreds. Mooncakes are these little delicious things. Um, I don't know if you've had them, but they're dangerous. Um, But to come and make mooncakes for for over 100 people for strangers, to have that type of relationship and access into someone's home is a beautiful thing. And that's that's what we get to do. That's just a small example of the way that we get to live as the church, as a way that's totally countercultural. And so for those of us here, the question is, how is it that you can start, potentially you've come, and the church for you is one of those things that I said, it's just kind of a social club, or it's just kind of something you're supposed to do to make you feel good about yourself. But you're not going to fully be experiencing the church if you're not living as family with those around you. And so what can you do? Join a community group. Get that app. Go back there if that's too much for you and sign up with us. We'll make sure we, we get you there. But start to live with some other people. Learn some names. Find out someone else's story of the people that you're interacting with here in this room. Pray with each other. Join one of our serving teams is another thing that you can do. Stand at the back and welcome people with a, with a program. Go downstairs with our kids' ministry and sing and dance like a fool with two-year-olds. It's so much fun. Come on the retreat with us in October. Start to lean in. And I know, I know, some of us are afraid. We hear church's family and we're like, ah, but my family. I don't know that I want any more family. We have an aversion to that word. We think that we can keep an emotional distance because then they can hurt me less or disappoint me less or they can expect less of me. But you're not experiencing the full gift of being adopted as a son or a daughter of Christ if you're not engaging with the church as family in some way. And the second gift is one of the reasons that this family is different. 
It's the idea that we have a gift of grace and a culture of condition. It says in verse 7, In him we have redemption through his blood, the forgiveness of sins, in accordance with the riches of God's grace that he lavished on us. We live in a culture of condition. You are what you produce. You are who you know, your last success or your last mistake. And most recently in our call-out culture, the idea of forgiveness is almost non-existent. If you have done something publicly that someone thinks is out of line, you are publicly shamed and there's almost a, a joy and a delight from the masses in seeing you come down. But this family lives by a completely different set of values. We live with, with this gift of grace and this culture of shaming and of condition. It doesn't mean that we just do the worst thing that we can possibly do and, you know, well, we've got God's grace, but it means we don't have to hide behind our mistakes and our fa- failures. And it's incredible because grace simultaneously creates this humble confidence where we are humble and we know, you know what, I'm a, I'm a mess, I screw up, I do the wrong thing, but I can be confident in the forgiveness that has been extended to me and I can extend it to others. I got to witness it just last night. There was a conflict, and this is so important too, especially when people are coming from different cultures, that we understand the grace that's been extended to us, that we can extend it to each other. I saw this just last night. There was a conflict between two cultures and there was a language barrier. And I got to watch two people who understood they're standing in the family of God, listen and be respectful and say, well, that did hurt me and I'm confused by that. But let's continue to talk and pray with one another. I'm like, this doesn't happen anywhere else. This only happens when, when we understand who God is and what it is that he's done for us. The last gift is, is this gift of revelation and a culture of relativity. It says in end of verse 8 and verse 9 and 10, it says, With all wisdom and understanding, he made known to us the mystery of his will. He made known to us the mystery of his will according to his good pleasure, which he purposed in Christ to, to be put into effect when the times reached their fulfillment, to bring unity to all things in heaven and on earth under Christ. We definitely live in a culture of relativity. It's near impossible to say that you have clarity on truth without being judged. The doctrine is, the the overriding doctrine of our time and of our culture is that what's good for you is good for you, what's good for me is good for me. And if you say otherwise, you're wrong, which is ironic because that's a doctrine of itself saying that one is right and the other is wrong. So it's it's really hypocritical and crazy town. But this gift that we have is this revelation from God about who he is. And this is what Paul is so excited about. You know, this, my son Judah, the one I was talking about who just went to pre-K, um, he's a bit much. I don't know if you've seen the movie The Incredibles, um, but he's Jack-Jack, which is the baby who can, like, explode into fire, okay? Um, that's Judah. And he's just, he's intense, right? And he, anytime he does something new, he comes home and he's like, Mom, Mom. Mom, I was at soccer, and I had the ball on my head, and I had to hop, you know, and, and typically I'm distracted, right? Typically I'm, I'm dealing with someone else, or I'm, I'm cooking a meal, or I'm working on my computer, or I'm, you know, I'm doing something else. Mom, Mom, 
Mom, look at me. I got to tell you this. Mom. And eventually, what does he do? Judah says, look at my face. And he'll grab your face and, and like make you look at him. And this is, this is what God has done with us. He looks at a distracted people that forget about his love, who forget that we have been formed for family, who continue to believe throughout our days that we are what we do or what other people think about us or what we have. And he sends a prophet, Moses, Amanda, hey, hey. He sends a prophet named Elijah, hey, hey. Since Jeremiah and Isaiah and Hosea and on and on. And finally, as humanity continues to speculate whether God is like this demanding judge or a grandfather in the sky or a traffic cop, cop waiting to catch us, God covers himself in flesh and shows us exactly what he's like. He's like, hey, look at my face in Christ. Look at my face. This is who I am. We don't have to guess. We have a gift of revelation in the midst of all the relativity out there. Because God and Jesus has said, look at my face. We don't need to guess anymore. We don't need to wonder what our purpose is or our meaning is. God has made known to us that in Christ, he's bringing all things together. We are invited to join God as living as one of his children, as a family with our brothers and sisters, extending grace in ways that make people so confused because we have full confidence of who God is and what he's done for us in Jesus.